Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Parenthood Podcast. We all know that being a parent can be challenging at the best of times. I distinctly remember struggling to keep my head above the water with two children under two, feeling like the burden of having two such small children with such different needs meant that I couldn't be the mother I wanted to be to them or the wife, friend or person I wanted to be. But everything else was good in my life. I'm happily married with a close and healthy family to support me. And while occasionally my back hurts, I had no health concerns, no money concerns. My children were well. So how do people cope when they don't have the stability that I have? Well, with me today, I have someone who I so enjoyed talking to last time that I've persuaded her to come back to the parenthood. I'm sure many of you listening will remember the Sex Talk podcast that we recorded with Emma Gledhill. That's one of our most popular and talked about episodes. For those who don't, Emma is an educational speaker, trainer and coach who specialises in child and adolescent development, supporting both parents and teachers in the emotional dialogue we have with our children. Emma, welcome back. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me back. Oh, well, it's a real pleasure to have you. Um, so when children come along, they take over our lives. I see it on a daily basis in the bump class. You know, our once tidy houses are transformed into <laughs> dens of plastic toys. Our daily routine changes. The photos on our phone contain only one subject, our children. And that's for a reason, isn't it? You know, it's important for children to be at the heart of, of our lives once we have them. Oh, for sure. It, and it takes over our preoccupations. Uh, we talk about having a maternal reverie where there's a, and, and, and fathers do this too, um, where there's an ongoing thinking pattern that is centred on that child. Yeah, we make room for them. And they take it if they, we don't give it. <laughs> they do, they do. And th- But then often, you know, and I slightly defy anyone, we were talking about this earlier, not to have some sort of incident in their life where suddenly the child isn't at the centre. So that status quo gets altered. And obviously this is what we're going to talk about today. What sort of what sort of things do sort of impact that status quo and alter that? I think um, you know, we, we have points in our lives where, for instance, our relationships come under strain that might be conflict with our partners Um, and of course that whole dynamic of changing from being simply a pair to having a third or having four of us you know those changes they impact that foundational relationship so with every gain of a child there's also in a way a a, a loss as well of the relationship as it was Um, 
Other points of difficulty occur, of course, with illness. Um, when there's an illness that uh, really threatens or destabilizes the family's routine, where a parent is no longer able to work or no longer able to really be physically or mentally as present as they were. Um, and of course, if it's one parent who is ill, uh, then the other parent is also going to be incredibly worried. Um, then we also have bereavement, and um, we're tending to have our children a little later, and therefore our grandparents are an ageing population. So again, we can have sudden loss or sudden illnesses at that upper story of the family dynamic. And of course, um, you know, if we need to zoom in and help an elderly parent who is really in need, then that's where we go into a different sort of form of family survival mode and it takes our eye away from the children. Um, and of course, that's natural. You know, family life is not going to 100% centre around meeting that child's needs. And it would be damaging if, if we tried to do that. You know, our children do need to learn how to handle frustration of not being at the centre of the universe. Otherwise, they won't be able to go into group life in school and tolerate being, you know, one of 20, 30 children. Um, so, so that small periods of that frustration and less availability, they are part of the tapestry of life. But when that's too much for too long and there isn't sufficient dialogue to help the child process what's happening, then those periods of maybe temporary or ongoing loss of the parent and the way the parent was able to parent before the difficulty, before the times got really tough, um, that's something that needs to be looked at. Yeah. I mean, obviously, one of the key things is is also kind of separation and divorce and the reforming of families, you know, mm. when one partner then gets married again or has a new boyfriend or girlfriend or, or partner. And that obviously has a has a big impact then on on children. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we know statistically now that one in two children by the age of 15 can expect to be in a home where there has been a separation um, some form of family breakdown. So it is prolific uh, in our society. And yet um, we still have a very adversarial approach to divorce and separation. Someone has to be right and somebody has to be wrong. And the important thing is, where are the children in the mix of that? Um, you know, And I think where there is that loss in the relationship between father and mother their attachment system has completely changed because obviously we 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 grow up in our family home we are attached to our parents and our siblings we then go through a process through adolescence where we learn to attach to others in our peer group and create meaningful attachments and then eventually we form a really important attachment, which is the foundation of our next family life, our yeah. next experience of family life. And of course, you know, for both partners there, when that attachment is under threat, it's like an earthquake. And each parent can be in a kind of emotional survival mode where 
either the preoccupation of the loss of that relationship or the conflict surrounding that imminent loss really takes over and there isn't any real room for that reverie, that important tuning in with the child or children who are also going to have their attachments potentially falling apart too. So we become a little bit more inward looking and it's hard then to be as observant and as attuned as we might be on those good days and may those good days last long but you know bad days happen bad months bad years happen and it's how we make sure we've got enough petrol in the tank to show up well for our children because they are onlookers but they're also involved yeah. in the breakup of a family. And, and you know, I think traditionally we look at the breakup of a family as kind of disastrous, but actually it's, it doesn't need to be disastrous. I mean, it can, you know, it's the reforming. And actually if that's done well and the quality of the relationship is maintained, fine, you may not be married, but that might be the better decision for all parties involved if you are incompatible. But if you still respect and like each other and the parent, the children know that they are still loved by both parents and both parents you know, respect each other, that can be not a bad thing. Mm. It doesn't have to be a disastrous thing by any means, but it is going to be a difficult thing. It's going to be an earthquake for the parents. It's going to be an earthquake for the children. But you're right. It's how you rebuild after that quake that really is going to matter. And, you know, children, they need both parents unless there is a compelling safety reason why not in other words, that one of those parents presents a physical or an emotional threat to the child, then the children need access to both parents. They also need to understand the story of their family and their reforming family. And often we overlook that need. Um, you know, working with parents who have very young children, for example, um, the need for even very young children, to have some sort of coherent narrative about what has happened in their family life, that why their parents have separated. It has to be age-appropriate. It has to be simple for the younger child. But that is a really important thing for, for example, future attachments. Um, if they're able to... Uh, understand and process the story of what happened to their family. Um, and in doing so, we clarify some really important problems that I think children automatically have. You know, young children are quite narcissistic and they can quite easily feel that it is their fault. And in fact, whatever age a child is, you know, actually debunking that myth with giving them a clear narrative about what happened. Now, clearly, in some, you know, I, I know from my teaching career that some family breakups, some issues between couples can be very acrimonious, very difficult for, um, you know, real good teamwork to take place. But both parties, ideally, need to be able to give a clear narrative of what happened. Now, those narratives don't need to agree they don't have to be absolutely enmeshed. But ideally... But I ideally, if there can be teamwork, if the couple can come together and do teamwork as parents, then that is really helpful. 
Um, and passive aggression does not sort of go over the children's heads. No. It's really important that even from an early age, children do not feel they have to take sides. As I said before, they need to be able to have contact with both parents and have a relationship with both parents and have a narrative about, you know, the parent who stayed and the parent who left and where they fit into that coming and going. And they need to be able to go off and experience the time they have with the other parent, with both parents, in a kind of guilt-free way. And, you know, I do a lot of work with teenagers who kind of feel that when they go off and have their time with one parent and they come back to the other parent, they really feel awkward about talking about the time that they had there. Mm. And yet that's an important part of their life, isn't it? Yeah, they can't feel that they're, you know, guilty that they're enjoying time with the other parent and that's making mummy sad because actually had a really nice time with daddy. Mm. I mean, it takes a lot of generosity on both parents side to be kind of open to both aspects of their lives Um, because what happens as children grow particularly when they become teenagers is um, their task of splitting off from those close family ties now that process becomes a little bit more complicated when there's already a split and I mentioned before that idea of the adversarial legal process of divorce, for example, where one party has to be wrong and one party has to be right. In order for them to navigate those two lives and have an integrated approach to both parents and growing up and becoming an, an individual who is also separate from both those parents is something that takes it takes quite a lot of time and can be very difficult in any stable family, but a little bit of extra thought, a little bit of extra observation around, you know, and I I think for parents to look out for endings and beginnings. So for example, how their child is showing up when they're saying goodbye to go off and when they're coming back, what their mood is like, any changes there. And so there can be dialogue too, because when a separation is brokered and worked out, and, you know, the spoils of the partnership have been divided. There needs to be really ongoing discussion involving the child increasingly as they grow up as to how contact is is working, how well that contact is working. And typically, as young people grow through primary school, particularly into secondary school and through secondary school, their own lives become more independent and more busy too. And will it still work to always have weekends with parent X who's living in another part of the city or maybe somewhere else in the country? What are they sacrificing when they do that? Does that then discount them from aspects of their own peer attachments that they also need to be able to um, enjoy? Um, So as well as revisiting the narrative of mummy and daddy separating from an early stage that needs to be revisited and so do the sort of contact arrangements as the child grows and changes and they have different wants and needs too hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What I think is non-negotiable is the idea that, you know, the child still needs to be in contact with both parents. And quite often, young people do take sides. And of course, it can be all too easy for a parent who is wounded through that through that conflict, through that split up to actually collude with that. Yeah. And also for it to be a sort of cheap thrill, essentially, for one party, if your daughter to feel like your daughter's on your side and you feel really, you know, hurt by what's happened Mm. to you. You know, it's quite easy to think, oh, that makes me feel a bit better. But you've got to think is that really a good thing for her to be feeling? Mm. Or actually, is she going to be the victim at the end of this when it's not her fault at all? Yes. And in the moment, in the in those early moments, that, that may be something that both of you share. And that's kind of okay, but one needs to have an eye on, you know, the exit point from that hurt and, and thinking, actually, what's best for my child is that they are able to have that clear, free capacity to love and have a relationship and an ongoing sustainable relationship with both of us. Um, the fact that that's separately, that is okay, but that that is an important thing. And I suppose there's also the aspect of forgiveness. You know, we lead by example. Children model themselves on us. If we behave a certain way, they're more likely to behave a certain way. And forgiveness is probably one of the hardest things to do as a, as a human don't you think and and if we can model that it is okay to forgive it is okay that someone did something bad to you or someone made the wrong decision someone made a mistake but that doesn't mean they're a bad person they made a bad decision but we can't hold it against them mm-hmm. you know in terms of sort of gleaning the positives in a sort of bleak and dark and miserable situation to sort of lead by example and go okay i was really unhappy that this happened but she, she, they are a good person and we still love them is, mm. is a really important lesson for them to learn. And it's the, you know, the, the father or mother that they have is the only one they're going to get. They may have step parents in the future, um, but they are still their only parent. Um, and, you know, you know, we've also got to remember that as, as our children grow and individuate, they're going to kick back against us at some point. And so when we're in those sort of darker moments where our teen is really going to be quite assertive, potentially provocative, difficult about marking out their own territory, getting more independence, that's when we're going to need a parenting partner to stand shoulder to shoulder with us. There's no point one side of the parenting partnership trying to tackle perhaps a dysfunctional attitude towards screens if, you know, three nights a week that work is being completely undone with the other parent. So making sure that the splitting is is not going to affect 
you know, the splitting of the couple is not going to affect really effective teamwork in parenting, where boundaries and changing boundaries as a child grows are discussed. And, um, you know, certain boundaries are held, certain values are still shared, and both parties, both parents can still express those with good teamwork. I think, you know, a lot of people listening to this, something big will have happened, whether it's separation, whether it's bereavement, whether it's a change in circumstances. And that is something they have no control over. And that's a pretty awful situation to be in. You want the best for your children. You think, oh, my God, life is is wrecking this for us. But one thing you do have control over is how you deal with the situation. And that is what you believe has actually the biggest outcome. You know, divorce doesn't have to be catastrophic. Bereavement mm. doesn't have to, you know, affect your child's personality. Um, it's about how you deal with it and the lessons and the conversations you have with that child at, at that time. For sure. And, you know, <laughs> it's very difficult to get guidance on, on that because, you know, a family's deep unhappiness is, is something that obviously we're apt to share over a glass of wine, etc., between friends and we want to vent, etc. But really... Um, getting carefully scaffolded good advice about what outcomes you ultimately want, what outcomes will be best for your child. And I I would like to um, recommend some reading matter here. There's a really great book um, called Understanding the Needs of Children When Parents Separate. And it's by Amelia Dowling and Di Elliott. Both are... um, senior psychotherapists working at the Tavistock Clinic um, who have 40-odd years of experience of working um, with young people through traumatic family separations. And the guidance they put together is really helpful. It's step-by-step, age-by-stage. There are links to it on my website. Um, and I'll I put think, it in the episode notes as well. I, I think that's a very, very helpful resource for parents mm. to find ways in which they can articulate a narrative of their loss in a way that's objective, constructive um, and helpful for their child in in that the child still needs to understand that loss, but understand that they are still loved and that both parents do still care for them and how that is going to actually take place how that is going to be organized mm. I mean I think professional advice is, is something that is really important I'm I'm a big believer hence hence the podcast and getting lots <laughs> of professionals to come onto the podcast I, th- I find what you find is that you talk to friends and friends will very often tell you you know they'll tell you what they think they want you to hear what they think will make you feel better and that might not necessarily be the most productive advice I think the good thing about talking to a professional be it whatever's happened to you is that they will tell you the advice that is helpful and that in the long term will be you know useful rather than what someone who's not professional thinks you might want to hear Mm. I mean I think we started this conversation thinking about you know when when tragedy and difficulty occur our eye gets taken off the ball where our kids are concerned a little sometimes a lot and how to get our eye back in is actually the aim here and it may actually only mean a few tweaks a few good honest conversations to actually you know raise the issue you know I've had a really tough time my father died 
you know, a few months ago. And to be able to talk to my daughter, for example, about the way in which that grief hit me and how it also affected, you know, there was a month where I was looking after my mother. She needed a lot of help in that first month. And so it was unprecedented in my family. You know, I've been lucky enough to be able to change my working pattern from being a deputy head who basically lived at school to having the flexibility to be around for my daughter a lot more. And suddenly the rug gets pulled from that. And there was a month where, you know, I was in my own survival mode. And more than that, I was spending most of the time in in rural Lincolnshire, 150 miles away. Um, And that was tough. That was tough for all of us. And being able to talk about that and reassure and give my daughter, our children, a platform to talk to their fears. You know, will this happen to you? Um, So that they know that we miss them too. And that although we were hurting and we were in pain about our loss, we still love and care for them. And we are wondering how they are right now too. Because of course, really, our children, they learn love from us and they learn they they learn to love us back and when they see us in distress they want to comfort us and so there's a lot of reverse parenting that's done by even quite young children um and to make sure that they they know that you know i can be that vulnerable person and i may step into that for a little while but i'm still mum and i'm still there for you because that will affect every part of their life. If they're struggling emotionally with, with the parent not being as present as they usually are, you know, their schoolwork, it's not like they can totally disassociate home from school and, mm. you know, leave all that baggage at home when they step into school. And you'll notice, I mean, often as a teacher, you'll probably know this, but um, that their, their behaviour at school will often be impacted. Often, but sometimes not, surprisingly. It's very interesting because, you know, th- this sort of splitting I'm, I've been talking about, an emotional splitting, um, as well as the splitting, for instance, of a family through chaos or bereavement or disaster or illness. Um, this sp- splitting is a kind of a coping strategy. So someone may be very together at home because they feel they have to show that they're together at home because their parents are upset or you know, they, they recognise that their parents don't maybe have enough petrol in the tank right now. Um, so they may show up in a very orderly way at home, but at school it can fall apart and vice versa. They can be very orderly at school and actually school can become a refuge where, you know, they are, they are free of that catastrophe. They can immerse themselves and have fun with their mates like they always did. And actually that's quite important too. But my God, you can feel guilt from that. Mm. You know, you go off, you have your laugh with your friends and then you you realise, but granddad's still dead or, um, you know, auntie so-and-so is still in hospital and my cousins must be really worried and my life is just going on. So re- that's where our attentiveness as parents is really needed, that we we watch out for these sort of fears and fantasies growing and also feelings of guilt and shame that need to be put into a proper frame um, it's a perfectly natural process 
But I, I'm, I'm glad you raised school, uh, and, and this is the important thing, and that is to have a good dialogue with the school, that you, you know who you can go to. If it's a secondary school, whether it's ahead of year, or if you feel it's a rather more private matter, um, you know, to go to someone who's senior in a pastoral sense, it might be the assistant head or the deputy head, and you can you can talk to confidentially and, um, you know, all families have a right to privacy and dignity um, and therefore it is very, very possible to talk to the school, tell them what the school needs to know so they can look after the child and be very clear about who you feel needs to know and who doesn't need to know. So it's not as though it's necessarily something that's going to be broadcast in the staff room and suddenly 120 teachers, they're looking out for your child but they also know your story. Um, and I think this is something that's really difficult because, of course, you know, if we take the case of a divorce or a separation, it doesn't just happen in one easy hop. There's often months of build-up to it. So, again, it's about maybe thinking about what the kids are picking up along the way and being able to actually, as a couple, say, do you know what, this is going to be affecting them. Maybe we should let the school know on that confidential basis that I'm talking about so that someone there is looking out for them teachers see so much and they are a really excellent resource they see our children every day through a routine and so when we see we often pick up on tweaks and changes in a child's behavior the way they're showing up the way they are interacting with other people we see them, for instance, in registration, which is a kind of the hybrid. It's the sort of legal thing all teachers have to do and do well. Um, but it's that hybrid moment, a transitional time between free time and play and the actual getting down to business. And it's those times where form tutors can see someone in a much less guarded way than when the performance of the lesson begins. So our teachers are amazing resources. A good teacher who's really tuned in will notice and be able to speak up. And again, for parents who are, you know, they've got their own shit to deal with at this point, to know that there is someone else who is also keeping an eye out, who can give you an early warning signal that actually, you know, Fifi may say she's coping at home, but actually there are signs here that we see she's maybe not. Or conversely, I know it's tough at home, but she seems to be coping really well. Yeah. What you're doing, you're doing it right. Yeah. And that is actually also a really important message to have when you think everything is falling around mm. you. <laughs> to know that yeah. one thing isn't isn't it's catastrophic. Very, it is very isolating. These moments feel very isolating. Who will help? And I, I think, you know, schools generally, teachers generally, are very caring about the children who they see every day. And particularly if there is a little bit of a heads up that something is going on in the background, they can be... There, there can be excellent teamwork between school and home there. Yeah. In terms of the impact of a, a kind of big situation on children of different ages, I mean, obviously that's going to be very different if you've got a two-year-old or a baby mm. than if you've got a 16-year-old. Broadly speaking, how does it affect each sort of <laughs> age range? I mean, I'm yeah, sort of asking question. you basically to, <laughs> to, to sort of <laughs> recite the dictionary. Mm. No, um, 
how, like with with sort of babies what what right. what do you, what do you sort of pick up on how would they i mean you sort of think well they can't understand what we're saying mm ah ah but god they can pick so much up you know and i think we often underestimate babies and young children and i would say that i mean there's very very famous experiment still face experiment with 9 month old babies um where the mother stops interacting with the child and just presents a very still face for about two minutes and we see the young baby fall apart in the grand scheme of that baby's life it's not a big deal but it is actually quite upsetting to watch the footage of this and you know you can find it on youtube very easily and it shows us and it showed it showed shown um the world of child development research that actually very young children pick up on emotional vibes and emotional changes and when a parent a carer becomes unresponsive um not it, angry not no. aggressive in any way just simply unresponsive exactly that's why it's called a still face experiment you know the, the mother isn't suddenly pulling a nasty face it is just actually a still calm face uh, a neutral face um so yeah, it's it's important for us to remember that even very young children they will need that narrative. They you know, and if that divorce for instance happened or that that gap in care happened a long time ago as and they were very young, it still needs work later on. So what we might see in a very young child pre-verbal naught to their possible reactions will be that they are unsettled or they might be listless, they might be agitated. We might see quite a bit of regression. What so in terms of development? Yes, yes. So a child who previously was walking might stop walking for a little bit and go back to crawling. Um, or the regression might be in terms of their play. They might retreat to um, you know a toy that they um, you know really sort of rely on a toy that was um, important to them at a younger phase. Um, sleep disturbance, of course. Food refusal. Um, that is often a very good. Both of those things are good communication. You know, these big changes in a young child's behaviour, um, they can be a communication of uh, a need that's not being met. Mm. And so being open and curious to what's going on. Um, there may be persistent crying, um, reverting, wanting a bottle or a dummy, needing comforting, more easily frustrated, um, you know, the words that they might have been able to use, they stop using. And so, you know, returning to a more babyish state. Now, we also can see, and, and this is at any stage, we can also see um, uh, somatic responses where uh, there is a sort of uh, physical response, physical illness. Um, for instance, tummies, heads, etc., and that's quite common. Yeah. And when the sort of later stage, when they can actually communicate a little bit, when they're sort of approaching five, mm. do they always communicate verbally uh, how they're feeling? Or is it very often their behaviour which is more? It's often their behaviour which is more. Um, you know, you'll see more clingy behaviour. You'll see, again, that sort of temporary loss of skills. So, for example, not being able to put their shoes on, for example, baby talk eating, sleeping changes again, increased temper tantrums and whining, missing the absent parent, um, you know, and keeping on going to that point. Where is, where is, where are they? And especially at bedtime, 
because of course you know when the lights go out that's another separation isn't it um they can blame themselves and feel responsible um and sometimes a lot of magical thinking that if parents get back together so they might start trying to affect that and sometimes you know being ill is a way of rallying both parents around yeah and getting the attention that they mm. so desperately crave so i mean what what we have there really is a great difficulty of you know what what vocabulary does a young child have in 3 to 5 to talk about those big feelings it's going to be quite limited yeah so they're going to show it rather than be able to tell it and talk to it mm. um, but it, again it's it, it's in the observation of the patterns and of course it's very hard for you know for example a parent who's hurting uh, a parent who's deeply worried about um you know for instance an ill partner to face a barrage of questions again and again and again having to go over the same ground again and again and again and it's where we have to do a lot of self-management and a little bit of self-care to dig that bit extra deeply at bedtime for instance where we notice these patterns of clinginess to be able to cope with it um with more objectivity and not sort of lash out. We've got to contain these big feelings, not sort of push them down and push them away and give the child the sort of sense that those feelings are unwanted. Those feelings just are, and it's our job to help them learn how to process those big feelings. So the clinginess can be really difficult because, you know, you're you're exhausted anyway and come bedtime you, you do just want them to go to sleep because you then may have a little bit of time to come up for air. Um, but that clinginess is showing you something. And I'm not saying that suddenly we should respond to that clinginess by staying endlessly, sleeping with them, for example. But we've got to be able to respond to that with some boundaries and kindness. We've got to tune into that clinginess. And, and, and acknowledge have yeah. that, that they're feeling vulnerable like you are. Yes, yes. For that next stage, you know, once they're sort of in, in primary school, I mean, when you sort of said what language does a three-year-old have to describe these big feelings, I mean, to be honest, I struggle with that sometimes and I'm 40. Um, <laughs> presumably then the, the language isn't necessarily there even when they are, they've got a much wider vocabulary. So presumably their actions mm. are also very indicative of how they're feeling rather than their vocabulary. I think this is very true. And even if we think about... Um, you know, older children, for instance, eight-year-olds plus, who have much more uh, range in their expression and also in their cognition and their ability to, you know, think and, and um, you know, understand what's going on. We might be able to tell them a little bit more, but they also become a little bit more inhibited about talking about their vulnerabilities. They become more sensitive to uh, to us and are hurt as well. Um, and so often they can present a veneer of coping, which we should not take for granted, actually. Um, and of course, it's very reassuring to think, oh, she's being so brave or he's being so brave um, and he's coping really well and to praise that. And of course, I'm not saying that those those strengths are not there to be recognised, you know, that our children can be very kind to us and they can be very concerned Um but they're still our children and there needs to be space for them also to be raw, vulnerable, angry, hurt, distraught. 
And presumably for that to change day to day, you know, yes. some days we all find life a bit easier than other days. And yeah. often you don't know why that is. You just, that's yeah. the way you feel. And so it's important for us to be ready to catch them in those moments of vulnerability and to encourage them to speak to them so that we can help them process those big feelings. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, the behaviour is often the way in which all of us communicate more clearly a need that's not yet met or a skill that's not yet learned. And, of course, the skill of emotion regulation and particularly unbearable emotions mm. like loss, dread, fear. We can learn to suppress them because they become unspeakable. Yeah. So we need to make sure that for our children they, they can be speakable. And that's presumably as a parent initiating that conversation. Yeah. We're going to talk about in a minute about what to do. But in, as they get older, you mm. know, when they get, we sort of mentioned the teenage years already when, when teenagers often push back and they need a villain in their life. And that's very often <laughs> the parent. How is it manifested in these years? Because also, presumably, they might be young when the trauma occurred, but then they're 16 and they're processing it in a slightly different way than they did. And maybe their behavior is indicative of, of an earlier experience and it is very much related to that, but the parent might not necessarily associate them together. Mm. I think being aware, for instance, that the narrative around what happened needs to be revisited at different times. And even if, even if you think, oh my God, you know, we put that to bed when they were seven, and, you know, so much life has been lived now where, you know, f you know, for instance, my God, they were bridesmaid at my remarriage. Um, but actually being aware that as they grow older, they become, for instance, more aware sexually about what's going on. They become more curious and also they will be hearing from peers I mentioned that actually you know divorce and family separation is far from isolated so they'll be seeing it going on in their periphery and they will be wondering and they will be creating their own narratives if we don't actually have some dialogue about them and those narratives can change so you know for instance um, in a family where for instance there's been maybe an over identification with one parent's side of the story suddenly when they're a little bit older the conversation with the other parent gives them a different insight that lands differently with them at that stage and suddenly they actually think ah I've been blaming you all these years and now actually I recognize that that was maybe wrong so actually being really aware that the narrative needs to be uh, consistent, age appropriate and, you know, moderated by different viewpoints, um, but given in that coherent, clear way. Um, they don't need to know chapter and verse. And I don't think it is appropriate for us to, um, you know, convey absolutely everything to our teenagers. Um, but they do need to be able to keep the sort of fantasies that they might develop around a one-sided narrative in check. Because there can, as I say, be that ricocheting between um, having identified for many years with one parent and then recognising, ah, but I shut out the other when I did that. Um, and the feeling of guilt. And the feeling of guilt, 
so and and that propels a different form of action in the relationships it's interesting what you say about that changing perspective i was talking to a girl recently whose whose mother left um, when she was sort of in her 20s and then when she was 30 or so she started having children herself and she said that was the tipping point for her was she mm. suddenly realized what a big deal her mother, what a big decision it was that her mother could have left her children and left that family dynamic. And it wasn't until she became a mother herself that she then had to totally revisit it and, mm. and work on the feelings she had around the parent separation that had happened a decade earlier. Yeah. These things are not really neatly put into a box and put away. So, and it is really important that we're open to that revisiting. Uh, we're open to say, you know, do you want to talk about this? I've, not I've noticed this. I'm wondering if you're thinking about this. Can we talk about it? Do you want to talk about it? Um, and, and certainly getting their permission to talk about it, to go about it in that sort of collaborative way, not sort of, you know, I'm going to shine a light in your eyes now and I'm going to sit you down and talk you, talk you through this from a slightly older perspective. Um, you know, it's about creating that right moment and really sort of also starting with them as much as possible. You know, what is it that they... Or, you know, what is it that they're feeling and thinking about the way in which this sort of split family is 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 functioning? How well is it working for them? What questions do they have? And of course, all these moments, these milestones in life always do make us revisit what's happened. So you mentioned the birth of um, your friend's children. But equally, there are, you know, uh, there may there may be a, a fairly um, smooth divorce transaction as it were you know where the parents have acted as a really great team and been really open with the children but actually the remarriage of either party is another death it's another acknowledgement that actually it has ended it, ha it really has ended and of course when a wedding's about to happen everyone's got to be happy 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 so it's very difficult for the growing child who is giving all, getting all these messages that it should you know th isn't this great to actually go to that parent who perhaps is overjoyed about getting married to a new partner you know a new life being born and actually say do you know what I'm feeling really a bit sad about this so we've got to watch for it yeah. Be on the alert for it and, and open the windows and doors to those conversations. And similarly, then also recognizing that, you know, with a remarriage or a repartnering can come an, another birth, another family. And I think here it really is difficult for teenagers. For example, we look at them, they're so big, they're so capable, uh, you know, they look so sophisticated. But, you know, when those babies come along, they're so cute. They don't have, <laughs> you know, the flaws, the faults, um, you know, and our teenagers, you know, they they will have forged their own sort of long list of things that they're not so good at by this stage anyway. And along comes this perfect little bouncing baby. Where are they in that family dynamic? And that's about just about the height of your insecurity, isn't it? Age 16 to 18, mm. where you just doubt your mm. worth and... Mm. You know, well, for, how much people sure. love you. And and the other side of that is, you know, the maturity is sort of overestimated and said 16-year-old is suddenly asked to do babysitting detail. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, because it's assumed that they will. You know, and again, not working on assumption and actually being ready to talk. You know, I'd love you to babysit, but I'm wondering whether how you're feeling about your baby 
brother and you know we we love the fact that you seem so happy with um you know your new sibling but it's you know, okay not to be. It's okay not to be, and and we have to talk about it if it's if if it's not because I'm also I'm also still so here for you. I'm. I mean, I think at the heart of it lies communication. You know, if we could communicate really clearly with our children all the way through, life would be so much easier. But I think one of the most important jobs we have as parents is to teach our children to communicate. I mean. God, most of us adults don't, would gladly communicate better. How do we do that? What are the best ways to do it? I mean, I can only imagine how difficult it is to eke out of a sort of insecure 15-year-old, how they're really feeling if they really don't want to communicate that with you. Mm. How, how do you go about that? I think, you know, it does take a lot of resourcefulness in a parent to truly be present and meet our children where they're really at. And I think it involves our own routines for self-care, particularly when times are hard. So just looking after ourselves, giving really ourselves looking after time. Ourselves, you know, it might feel cathartic to stay up at night nursing a bottle of Chardonnay, um, you know, watching, really trying to look after our sleep, trying to maintain our our hobbies or having room for our own, for instance, our own sort of learning and development whether that's through hobbies we have, uh, making sure that we are still using our relationship network, friends, friends of the family. Um, I think that's really important too, because of course, I mean, I know we've talked a lot about family separations, for example, um, but often that support network is halved. Mm -hmm. And just because, um, you know, our children may be really, really friendly with someone who's actually our partner's friend our partner's workmate for them to still be able to pursue those friendships you know grandparents on the other side or aunts and uncles on that other side cousins we've got to think about you know ways in which we can minimize the family conflict and the way that actually decreases our own network of of help mm. because it's 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 help for us but it's also really important continuity of other attachments for our child too. So really making sure that we're looking after ourselves, we're thinking about our sleep, we're thinking about you know, really what things help us refuel. Because it's not enough to just work, and we all work damn hard, and then we work damn hard looking after our children. Simply working on both those fronts and stopping working isn't quite enough to recharge and refuel so really you know and certainly as a coach this is something that I work on with uh, parents particularly but also you know teachers and school leaders thinking about what is it what are the dimensions of what I what I do in my life that actually put fuel back in the tank and that will help me go at this added level of challenge with more energy and with more um, more petrol in the tank because actually it's it's they're going to need you know in these times of difficulty they need a hundred percent from us really they can't have it all the time but in little bursts in little important bursts they need our 100 percent and if we are only running on 50 percent all we can give them is a hundred percent of that 50 percent mm. and it's it's not going to be quite enough so yeah actually going back to basics looking after looking after ourselves very carefully so that we've got the ability to um you know 
return to being the general on the hill where our children are concerned, where we can actually observe, use our network strategically so that we can actually... Of course, we want everything to be okay. And where we see that things are okay, we just think, phew, thank God, at least that's not another, you know, hydra <laughs> that we have to deal with. Um, but actually, we should still be aware that um, you know, those big feelings that our kids have, we don't want them to suppress them because what we suppress stays with us. Well, and that leads me on very nicely, you know, how if you're really sad about something, a bereavement, a separation, a tragedy, how emotional should you be in front of your children? I think there is the need to be authentic and it is good for our children to see a little bit of vulnerability. And I think at times when we have experienced something catastrophic, it's very difficult to edit that. But I think it's recognised, again, going back to this idea of self-management, to recognise where we are feeling overwhelmed. And sometimes little things can trigger that, can't they? It might be a song on the radio, it might be watching something on TV. You know, you think you're watching a film that's perfectly neutral, that you can see with your children, and then, bam, Disney do it again. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and you, you well up and you tear up. It, it brings a loss afresh. And I think it's really important that they see that happen, but they also see, you know, that we, we talk to that. You say, oh, that's really got me right now. Mm. Oh, um, but it's okay. Just give me a moment. I'll be okay. And then making sure we connect, we reconnect with them, often by touch, by looking at them. You know, and sometimes when, you know, I certainly remember as a deputy head, talking to parents and children and teachers in extremis, how often people would apologise for their tears. Mm. Mm. Don't apologise for your tears. They I exist, they're real. Acknowledge them, but say, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be all right in a moment. Just, you know, give me a second. Let them see you breathe deeply. Do those... You know, heart expanding, sighs, exhalations, they really do help that broken hearted feeling. Because when we do that, we're modeling to them, yes, I can feel, I can be really vulnerable, but there are things I can do about it, I can talk about it, I can let it be, I can let it go, and then I can decide what else I'm going to let in yeah. in its place. Yeah. And, and it's that sort of three-part structure to dealing with tragedy overwhelm big feelings even just disappointment mm. you know let it be let it let it actually happen and have that emotional moment have the feeling because it's much harder to hold it all in than to let it all out. I mean, I mm. must say, I, I know from having experienced grief myself, that sort of, sometimes I just need to have a really good cry. And then I feel so much better. Mm. And that two minutes of crying will suddenly release mm. a huge amount that needed to be released. Yes. Whereas if you're thinking, I can't, I can't cry in front of my children, then that makes it so much harder. I mean, I must say, in my experience, the first time I cried in front of my children after our son was stillborn, I, I was really worried about it. But I think... 
it was a good thing to do because it enabled us to have a really honest conversation. And it also showed them that if I cried, it really wasn't the end of the world. They now see mummy crying quite a bit and they know that it'll be over. And, you know, mm. they, they've learned that that's not a disaster. Whereas if you never see your children crying, I suppose they also learn from you that it's not yeah. okay to show your emotions. It's not okay to show that you're vulnerable and that sometimes you you aren't so strong. I think that's a really important lesson to learn. I totally agree. It, it's important for them to see us modelling that idea of being able to have our emotional experience, to name it as well. Because once we name it, you know, I'm a bit overwhelmed at the moment, or I feel like really shouting right now. Actually, the moment of identifying it is also another form of release. And it also signals to our minds, you know, like, geez, I'm really tired right now. I'm so tired I could drop. And almost the moment you've identified it, your brain is already leaping to the next stage, which is a little bit of self-care. So I'll go a little bit easier on X, Y, and Z. Mm. Yeah. So, so really modeling, having the feeling, naming the feeling, actually stopping and understanding that feeling. And, and so the more we actually articulate it and put it into words, and then we st we, we've already climbed down from those big tsunami waves of emotion by doing so. And we start to make it seem more livable. It's natural to have big reactions. But, you know, the more we develop as sociable beings, we learn to, you know, not cry. You know, how, how soon do we teach our children to not be a crybaby, to not be angry, to, you know, to not, not kick, scratch or bite? <laughs> um, there are all these ways in which we sort of model an idea that control is really important. But if we only present a strong, controlled front to our children, they don't see the work being done behind the scenes. And maybe we're not actually doing that work either. So we're not modelling working through emotions, working through emotions. And our children learn how to be emotionally agile primarily through that dialogue with parents. I think that's a really positive note to end on. I've got to say, I think, you know, often when you're kind of faced with a big deal in your life and you think, oh my God, my poor children and how they're going to deal with this. And, I, you know, you feel sort of responsible that you're exposing them to sort of divorce or trauma or sadness or bereavement. But actually, our job as a parent is to teach them how to navigate life. And life is never perfect. They're going to come up against their own obstacles in the same way. And actually, if we can use their childhood to teach them how to deal with the slings and arrows that life is going to inevitably chuck their way, then we've done an amazing job as a parent. So actually sort of turning that round and thinking, I'm going to use this tricky situation to teach you how to deal with it and hopefully become closer as a family unit and mm -hmm. develop skills that you wouldn't have had the opportunity to develop if life rolled along just perfectly. For sure and I think that's about empowering ourselves in the midst of disaster isn't it? Yeah amazing that definitely is going to be the title of this empowering ourselves in the midst of disaster what a perfect perfect thing to end on emma thank you so much it's been so lovely chatting to you um thank you so much for coming back on the podcast if you're keen to hear more about emma do have a listen to the other podcast she's done for us and have a look at her website it's emma gledhill g-l-e-a-d hill.com where you'll find further information about the parent talks and workshops she does uh, really really worth worth a look at that and thank you all for downloading another episode of the parenthood we are now a year old we've completed a whole 
year of podcasts, which, according to the feedback you're all sending me, are really helpful, enjoyable and eye-opening. We consistently top the iTunes charts, for which I couldn't be prouder of. And it's all thanks to you listeners. So please do continue to subscribe, rate and review us. You can follow us on Instagram at theparent.hood or me at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Emma and me, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.